Caleb was talking about an outlandish claim um, that in Jesus, the entire history of the universe has changed. And here we see how it all begins. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, And showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him. And suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, open our ears. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When Christian theologians contemplate our human condition, they often turn back to the story of Adam and Eve and ponder their fall from grace. Since the time of the Apostle Paul, this thought has been put forward what I'm about to say, this thought, that our primeval parents' most basic sin was a loss of faith in and gratitude for the gifts of God. That our primeval parents' most basic sin was a loss of faith in and gratitude for the gifts of God. In the story in Genesis, the tempter comes and the tempter puts the spotlight on the one tree from which our ancient parents were forbidden to eat. Rather than seeing everything else in the garden, the lushness of the garden, the Many trees with wonderful varieties of fruit. Rather than seeing all that and focusing on that as a joyful gift to dominate their days and saturate their time, rather than seeing all that as gift, they became obsessed with the one tree, the one tree that they were not supposed to have. The temptation from the serpent is cast in a way that suggests that God is stingy and not gracious 
that God is arbitrary and not loving, the serpentine voice says to them, God's holding back on the good stuff from you because he doesn't want you to have the good stuff. That's how the temptation runs between the snake and Eve, and by extension, Adam. And in a flash, our ancient parents believed the dark fantasy put in front of them by the tempter that God did not provide fully for them in the gifts given. In a flash, they believed that they did not have all they needed. Acceptance of this dark fantasy is paradigmatic of the human condition from then until now. We turn away from God's provisions for human flourishing and we take matters into our own hands. It is against this backdrop that Jesus goes into the wilderness. Jesus will succeed where our primeval parents failed. Jesus will succeed where ancient Israel failed and where we all fail. A failure to trust God and the stubborn insistence that we will take matters always into our own hands, substituting autonomy for real freedom to flourish as God made us. Jesus will not substitute autonomy for real freedom. He will recognize true freedom as the gift of God to be found only through waiting on God, depending on God, and trusting God. Jesus will succeed where we have failed. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is what's going on when Jesus goes into the wilderness. The three temptations that Jesus resists are all at their core temptations for him to flourish apart from God's provision, for him to flourish apart from God's plan. Each of the three temptations echoes a particular time when God was teaching ancient Israel to depend on God and God's gifts alone. And at best, ancient Israel only temporarily and partially grasped the lesson each time. The first temptation comes, of course, in the form of trying to take advantage of Jesus' physical hunger and weakness. And in this temptation is echoed that time in the wilderness where Israel is grumbling. And as Caleb referred to this um, on Wednesday night, it's that time when they wanted to go back to Egypt. They, They knew where their next meal was coming from, at least, when they were in Egypt even if they were slaves, in that moment, that existential moment of despair, Israel preferred slavery to being physically hungry. But God meets them. He meets them mercifully 
according to God's timing and not theirs. And, but later he says this to Moses about it. Remember the long way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness in order to humble you? Testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. He humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna, with which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted, in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Israel, of course, only partially grasped that lesson, uh, proving, as we with them prove all the time, um, that we do, in fact, refuse to wait on God, refuse to trust God, and will settle for cheap substitutes compared to what God has for us. Jesus shows us in the wilderness and in the rest of his life that he, unlike Israel and unlike us, is fully alert to the reality that the path to human flourishing that we only partially grasp, it is a path of waiting on God, waiting on God's provisions, and believing that the Father's gifts are better than anything else on offer. The tempter's next move is to try to entice the Son of God into making God his father into the servant of his whim. Throw yourself down, God will take care of you. That language is similar to the taunt that's given to Jesus on the cross when the cynical onlookers at Jesus' crucifixion said essentially the same thing. If you're the son of God, get yourself down off this cross. The scripture that the devil quotes to try to entice Jesus to demonstrate his place of privilege as God's protected son is from the Psalms where God's people are promised protection by God, protection against all sorts of dangers. But the words that Jesus uses to dismiss the temptation are taken again from Israel's story in the wilderness. Do not put the Lord your God to the test comes from Deuteronomy 6 where Moses refers to yet another time in the wilderness where the Israelites were grumbling not about food this time but about a lack of water. And they say to Moses in their dark fantasy, you have brought us out here to let us and all our cattle and everything else die of thirst. God miraculously, again, provides for them water, instructing Moses to strike a rock with his staff, which then turned into a fountain of water. But again, the point of the story in Israel's memory was that it was wrong to grumble in the first place. And it was wrong to imagine that God, who brought them out of slavery, was going to do anything other than provide richly for them. In taking this example from Israel's life to rebut the devil's grisly temptation to cavalierly put God to the test, Jesus is making clear that his role as the new Adam, the new Israel, is to take the form of a humble servant 
who in the words of Paul in Philippians does not regard equality with God as something to be exploited or used for his own advantage, but empties himself, taking the form of even a slave, all the way to the cross. Jesus, in the face of that ridiculous temptation, Satan refuses to take matters into his own hands. His role is the role, consummate role of obedience to the Father. but not an obedience to an authoritarian figure that we often have in mind when we think of the word obedience, but obedience to the one who knows us the best, the one who wants what's best for us. This is Jesus now reversing what Adam did, what Israel did, and what we all do. This is Jesus reaching and wanting true human flourishing in life. Not just for himself, but for all of us. Jesus knows that his unique role will entail going to the cross. In many ways, all three of these temptations are put forward as ways to short-circuit that process. Jesus will not short-circuit the process because Jesus is not like us. If, hypothetically, you or I were given the powers of God, well, I mean, it's just an absurd hypothetical situation, but I don't think we'd be not using them to our own advantage. And the third temptation... All the subtlety is gone. Kind of feel like at this point that the devil's reaching, right? It's like it's like the person that won't leave the blackjack table. It's like, okay. I've lost everything. Nineteen, hit me. That's the only card game I know well enough to make a joke out of, so sorry. And the third temptation. There's no subtlety at all. Worship me, says the father of lies, and I will give you worldly power and glory. And no surprise here, Jesus in the same pattern reaches back to that same section of Israel's life in Deuteronomy. In that same section in Deuteronomy 6, the narrative that talked about Israel putting God to the test. And that same section is also a warning to not forget the goodness of God. The goodness of God in delivering them from slavery. The goodness of God in setting forth a pattern of life that would be good for them, lead to human flourishing. Moses cautions the people to not forget God's goodness. And all of it is boiled down to essentially this, they're to worship their Lord and God. And then the key word, alone. Worship the Lord your God. Alone. Three temptations are offered to Jesus, the new Adam, the new Israel, to work apart from God's gifts 
And in each instance, Jesus makes it clear through his actions and words that in the power of the Holy Spirit, he will not live his life apart from the promises of God's provisions. Until Jesus, the history of the human race is a story of human beings resisting God's design for human beings. Always taking our lives in our own hands, we make the fatal mistake of blurring the distinction between creator and creature. We ignore the God who gives us life as a gift. We prefer to be in control like Israel, even if it means going back to Egypt. And we all have our Egypts, don't we? I mean, that would be a good Lenten exercise, wouldn't it? You know, where's my personal Egypt? Or Egypt's plural. Confused at the core, we imagine autonomy to be freedom and ignore the freedom that God intends to give us. This tangle goes back to the beginning of time and in the cycle, in the, memor- in the memorable words of Rowan Williams, this cycle can only be broken by a human word, a human act. Only a human being can reverse and heal the process of human history. It isn't ideas and ideals that will do it, but some moment in history when relations are changed for good and all when new things concretely become possible. That's why we say every week, in Christ there is a new creation. This is what Jesus begins to do in the wilderness. Satan prefers a world of magic where he imagines himself to be in charge and able to do whatever he wants. Jesus chooses the real world where God is in charge And good things come as God's gifts, worth the waiting for. Indeed, for Jesus, worth going to the cross for. When we go to meet Jesus in the wilderness on the first Sunday of Lent, we're not going so much to learn how to use scripture to fight the devil. It's not like uh, this uh, macho call to you know, wield scripture like the six guns, right? Satan, I know scripture better than you do. It's not like that. I mean, it'd be cool in a way, but not so much about that. We go to meet Jesus so that we might mysteriously, as we do each week in communion, take hold as his life. I'm sorry, take hold of his life as gift. Trusting that the Holy Spirit will enliven us to live in that cross-shaped way. That This is why we don't teach a one-size-fits-all model of personal sanctification here because each of us is so different from the other. Each of us is unique. Each of us has our own struggles, but... We trust that each week when we come to this table, that the Holy Spirit will tailor make for us a care plan, so to speak, where we can be alert to those areas in our life where we are blocking what God would have for us and settling for something that is radically a cheap substitute 
We know that God does that. That's why we come. That's why we come here. And that's what we celebrate on this first Sunday of Lent, that God is that kind of God. I love what Caleb said leading up to communion. It is ridiculous. This is why Paul, in the beginning of Corinthians, says the gospel is foolishness. It's foolishness because we of our own accord will prefer autonomy to God's freedom every time. And in the one man, Jesus, the entire flow of human history is changing. Thanks be to God for the gospel. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.